Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Access to mental health services wasn't great before the pandemic. Then, two things happened. The need for mental health services increased, but so has access to telemedicine providers of mental health support. The Drug Enforcement Administration in the U.S. enabled flexibilities regarding prescription of controlled medications. And in 2022, the FDA announced a pandemic enforcement policy allowing mental health app developers to release certain treatment products without seeking authorization from the agency. Cerebral is a U.S. online therapy provider which was founded in 2019. By 2021, the company raised close to half a billion dollars and reached a valuation of 4.8 billion US dollars. Even the Olympic gymnast Simone Biles, who withdrew from the Olympic Games in Tokyo in 2020 due to personal mental health struggles and became a public advocate for a new attitude and public perception of how we approach mental health, struck a partnership with Cerebral, joining as an investor and its chief impact officer. But then in 2022, things started to shift for Cerebral in the opposite direction due to allegations of unsafe prescribing practices. The Wall Street Journal, Insider and other media publications investigated and reported about these allegations through the accounts of patients and former employees and the Department of Justice launched investigations for possible violations of the Controlled Substances Act. Eventually, in 2022, the company dropped prescribing of controlled substances entirely. Today, Cerebral is moving forward and is betting on quality mental health provision with high hopes around enhancements that could be achieved with the help of AI. So in this discussion, you'll hear from Cerebral CEO David Moe, who talked about the current state of telemedicine and changing legislation requiring in-person visits for prescriptions. He also talked about the speed and quality of mental health diagnosis and treatment through telemedicine. And we discussed the role of AI in mental health and how it has changed with the broad availability of large language models. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. And if you haven't yet, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Um, so, uh, David, thank you for joining this discussion on phases of digital health around telemedicine, mental health technologies, and uh, the direction that mental health care provision is going. Let me start with a very broad question of your personal assessment, where we are currently with mental health uh, treatments, because if we look at what happened in the last uh, three years, several things. On the one hand, mental health needs were high already before the pandemic. Then the pandemic, to a degree, uh, created new uh, mental health issues, new mental health patients, but it also decreased the stigma 
around mental health. So it really, really increased the need for uh, help and support. At the same time, uh, there were new telemedicine companies that uh, entered the space, rules around who can provide care, who can provide prescriptions for mental health, uh, changed rules around um, providing digital therapeutics or digital uh, apps uh, by the FDA were also a little bit uh, loose in terms of what you could provide and whatnot. Um, and also, I mean, Cerebral was founded in 2019. You raised almost half a billion uh, dollars and were valued at almost five uh, billion uh, dollars. But then, you know, when the things uh, started to change, when the situation subsided with the pandemic, all these rules are changing again. Um, and also um, the whole provision and the system around who can provide care is changing. You uh, yourself went through three um, uh, three waves of layoffs uh, in, in the company. So how would you assess where are we today with the mental health crisis in terms of the demand and supply of services? Uh, well, first of all, Tasha, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's great to be here and uh, having this very important discussion with you. I, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been listening to some past episodes. So many things there. Um, and maybe I'll start with uh, the fact that the demand for um, high quality mental health grossly outstrips the supply of mental health professionals. So if you try to go find a psychiatrist, often your wait times is three to four months, sometimes eight months, nine months. Um, and uh, the sad part is even if you get a psychiatrist or a therapist, the quality of the care is not great. And so for example, over 80% of mental health professionals don't measure any clinical outcomes whatsoever, right? Just to give you a sense of how unfortunate that is. If you had diabetes and you met your endocrinologist and they said, I'm not measuring your blood sugar, I'm not measuring your hemoglobin A1C, which is the lab that monitors how well you're managing your diabetes, you would say, I'm getting a new endocrinologist. But in psychiatry and mental health, we've been allergic to data and it's been a real problem. And so when the pandemic hit, there really was a silver lining. By letting telehealth come to the fore, we've all of a sudden democratized access to care because now if you're a New York licensed therapist or a prescriber, you can see patients anywhere in New York state. You don't have to see them in person anymore. There's another major value here. So there are so many patients who have a stigma against mental illness. They don't want to tell their family members um, that they're um, getting mental health care. And this allows them to seek care in the comfort and privacy of their home. So I'll give you a real live example of this. One of our patients at Cerebral was seen as therapist. The therapist finally asked, each time you're here, you're in your pickup truck uh, and uh, you're pulled up by the side of the road. Why are you in your pickup truck? Um, and the patient paused for a second and then replied, look, I'm not ready to tell my wife, to tell my kids that I have depression. I don't make enough money uh, to have a corner office uh, at work where I can have the privacy to have a therapy appointment. And so I need you all, you doctors, to start meeting me where I am instead of forcing me to meet you where you are. And I think that's emblematic of what we're trying to do. So Cerebral now, we're a telehealth service, as you mentioned, we're therapy, talk therapy, as well as medication management in all 50 states. Uh, we've touched over 750,000 lives. And to address the two problems that I mentioned, one is access. We can get care to people within days, two to three days usually, and then quality. We measure clinical outcomes across an entire slew of metrics that I'm happy to uh, dive into. Uh, but we're trying to move uh, measurement-based uh, mental health care forward. 
If we focus on the quality of care uh, through telemedicine, I am glad that you mentioned the fact that, you know, not everyone can really um, receive telemedicine and is comfortable with that because they don't have space at home. So some people actually prefer in-person visit. Is that a problem that, you know, even touches you or you just have basically patients that uh, can afford to have a telemedicine? And when it comes to just the online treatments, one thought that was interesting to me was how therapists um, don't just look at what the patient or the person says. They are also very focused on how the body reacts when a person speaks about specific feelings or things that has uh, have happened to them. So to which extent do you see this as a handicap in, in telemedicine and, you know, the debate around how can uh, good provision be provided through video? Yeah, it's a great question. And there are multiple meta-analyses on this. So studies of multiple different studies in order to aggregate, what is the outcome? It does tele-mental health, is it as good, not as good, or the same, uh, or worse uh, than in-person care? And conclusively, all the studies show that it's just as good. And, uh, and, and I think the reason behind that is, I certainly think there is something there about seeing the patient in person, but there's a lot to be said about why you would want to see the patient remotely. Uh, No-show rates are much, much lower as a result of that because it's more convenient for these patients. You have to think it's a luxury to take an afternoon off every Wednesday to go see your therapist from your work. That's not accessible to most Americans, most people in the world, right? So telehealth really enables that. And the other topic, broadly speaking, I'd love to double-click into this, I actually think generative AI, artificial intelligence, will completely upend the space for the better for patients. And the reason I say that is because now if you think about it, you're right. When you see the patient in person, you get some sense of what this person is like. But can you imagine the amount of data you're collecting about the patient through telehealth? So it's their voice. It's the rhythm of their voice, their word choice. It's uh, did they show up for their first appointment? Did they cancel? Right? Did they hesitate? When they texted you, did they say certain things or did they say other things? When they filled out these clinical surveys, where did they fill, uh, what were, were their scores? You can now integrate all of that information and tailor the treatment model to that patient going forward. And I think that's what's so exciting. This is why I think generative AI is going to completely revolutionize um, the field of mental health. How much uh, of it are you already using it, either for summarization of patient uh, records, for coding, for billing purposes, and everything that you mentioned? Quite a bit. Uh, So as a matter of fact, uh, uh, even before the generative AI movement took off, which is really this year, uh, 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 the beginning of 2023, it's kind of crazy to think through that, that it's just a few months old. Um, We already used AI to match patients to the right uh, patient, uh, clinician. So if they request someone who has similar ethnic background, the same gender, maybe someone who has experience with trauma-informed care, for the most part, we can honor that. Um, we do it also, and this is one thing that we've won an award for in, in LP, in natural language processing, um, where we can actually use the text message that they send us on the platform and detect with very high accuracy when they're suicidal or not. And so when they send a message like, I want to end it all, our machine learning would detect, okay, this is a risky text. And we have our internal crisis specialists that call them within minutes. We don't wait for them to call us. We actually proactively call those patients 
And we're hoping to publish that data definitely decreases suicidal thinking, right? So we've, even before the AI revolution, I would say, we've been using um, AI uh, to good effect. Um, and then now it's maybe two months ago, I had the honor to have dinner with Bill Gates. And we talked about where AI is headed, where generative AI is headed. And he very conclusively mentioned that healthcare, engaging patients, documentation, making the lives of the clinicians as easy as possible, that is low hanging fruit. And if you're not there in a year, other people will be and you won't be a company. And so we've very much anchored our strategies on generative AI. You mentioned basically the the potential for optimization of care for for better care, and uh, I think this is an important point because earlier in the beginning you said that with telemedicine the access increased because now suddenly healthcare providers could speak to patients, you know, across borders. And the reason I thought that was interesting is because even with that, you know, the, the doctor still has only 24 hours in a day or less because they need to sleep. Um, but um, the supply of healthcare uh, providers is not unlimited. So how do you see that uh, problem? And how you know do you as a company uh, provide good care for patients if you are decreasing your own uh, workforce? So to which extent are all these optimization mechanisms uh, helping you? To which extent is the decrease in the workforce also impacting how many people uh, you can provide care for? Yeah, so our quality has gone up quarter on quarter uh, for the past year, and we're really happy about that. Um, think about it this way. In the future, and we're thinking through this now, when we have a therapy appointment for an hour, we would just record the audio and then... Uh, ChatGPT or Bard or one of the generative AI companies would just spit out a note. And then afterwards, I would, within seconds, that can happen. And I can just edit the note and save at least 50% of the time or 70% of the time, looking at some of these estimates that are uh, required for documentation, for writing prescriptions that could be automated, right? And so what does that do? First of all, it's great for the patient because now the patient gets more time with the clinician. The clinician can spend more time with the patient face-to-face. Second of all, it's great for the clinician. You know, as a doctor, I didn't go into this business to write notes or document or write prior authorizations, right? Now I can actually see more patients more efficiently and my pay effectively goes up. So if you look at the burnout rate for clinicians and whatnot, it's acutely high in mental health professionals because of this. The pay is relatively low, right? So there are, uh, uh, so that's just one way of improving this. So that's on the clinician engagement side. But, uh, you know, Tasha, what really excites me is actually on the patient engagement side, right? So for example, let's make this very concrete. I'm someone, I'm a patient. I come in and I sign up for a therapy plan at Cerebral and it's the first time I'm doing therapy. So I'm scared. I'm supposed to meet this person who I don't know. And my friends are telling me, you just tell that person everything about you, right? That's really scary. That's very daunting for me. So now because the algorithm knows that this is my first time getting therapy, they know my age, they know my gender, they tailor the messages to me to say, hey, David, um, I know this must be scary. This is scary for everyone who starts their first therapy appointment. Take your time. During your first session, you don't have to talk about anything too significant or too emotionally charged. You just have to build that trust and take your time. There's no rush. And that that's a tailored message that would send to me. And that would increase my chances of showing up for that appointment and engaging in care and getting better. And that's one of many, many examples in which we can tailor care to the patient specifically. 
and happy to chat through others. But that, to me, if you amplify that by a thousand, you have a completely different mental health system. So what is the um, kind of average duration of a session? Uh, you know, if we even move outside of uh, mental health to just the general uh, practice in medicine, um, many doctors will tell you that when the patient is already leaving and is basically, uh, you know, leaving the office, they will actually be able to or prepared to ask what they actually came in for or a question that was most burning for them. So in therapy, especially, it takes a while for the person, for the patient to warm up a little bit before they can talk about their, their issues. Yeah, that's right. So therapy is quite intensive, right? It's 45 minutes to an hour per week. And uh, we really want patients to commit to it, right? It is very important to commit to that. And the first few sessions can be challenging right? Because you're, again, talking to someone who you don't know. Um, so there's plenty of time. But here's a, here's an interesting thought. You know, Tasha, you might ask, well, how do they come up with this? How do they come up with an hour a week is good therapy? Um, it wasn't a scientific study, I can tell you. It was because back in the day, brick and mortar, that's what made sense. If you showed up, you might as well stay for, I don't know, an hour. We can bill for an hour and let's make it weekly and no interactions in between, right? It was a functional thing. It was a, a purely not out of science, right? So what if we showed in telemedicine that, um, and I'm making this up, but just uh, hypothetically, for a specific type of anxiety disorder, if you have panic disorder, it's actually better to have twice a week therapy for 20 minutes each, right? Maybe for another disorder, it's having three check-ins during the day, but very short check-ins to make sure that you're doing okay, Right you can begin to innovate along dimensions. And this is time and cadence and visits that you never could uh, previously. So I'm really, I'm really excited. And this goes to our initial discussion, which is that if you just optimize for one variable and it's clinical outcomes, how much better are they feeling? How many, how many fewer uh, panic attacks are they getting on a regular basis? That could be really powerful. And you just keep on moving the other variables and you give the clinician the power, empower them with the data to say, hey, look, did you notice that when you do X, Y, or Z, or when you say this or that, or when you send this specific educational material, it actually gets your anxiety patients to do much better? That's where we need to go. And I think now with generative AI, we have the platform to be able to do that. So you mentioned that this is a, a hypothetical hope, you know, that we will be able to get to these uh, findings and basically new clinical pathways uh, with the help of data. Uh, you've been founded in 2019, four years later. What does your data tell you already around patients, around mental health? Absolutely. So we have some great findings from our data already. I'm a data scientist by training. I used to work on trying to predict when patients would have suicidal thoughts and behaviors by looking at their Fitbits, by looking at um, their sweating patterns or their heart rate or uh, information like that. So very, this is very, uh, a very much um, a passion of mine to bring data uh, to mental health care. What we find is something that is so grossly simple, Tasha, it's what we talked about. The more engaging the service is, the better their outcomes, the better uh, they like us, the better they do for the business. It really is, um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the triple name or the quaternary aim even, it really ticks off all those boxes, right? And so the idea is to get patient engaged, right? So again, going back to the fact that half of patients never fill the medication that they're prescribed by their psychiatrist, yet they'll show up for regular visits, just tells you how far we have to go. It's because that psychiatrist, not to blame them, they're busy, as you mentioned, 
they just don't have the time to engage the patient in the right manner so that there's enough trust that they, okay, I'm going to take this medication for a few weeks, right? So that's really, really important. I'll give you a specific example. This is very, very common. When you come in with depression and major depression, let's say, and you start a medication, an antidepressant, many patients say, man, I'm going to take this today. I'm going to feel better tomorrow because an antidepressant is like an antibiotic and an antibiotic I get, I get to feel better very quickly, but that's not the case for antidepressants. It actually takes sometimes four to eight weeks before that antidepressant begins to take effect. If that patient didn't have a trusting relationship with that doctor or that prescriber, they're going to take it for a few days and say, this is not worth it. You know, psychiatry is not for me. Meds are not for me. Uh, this is, this is not helpful. I'm going to leave. Right. However, if you, prep them and said that these medications are strange and they need to be titrated carefully. You have to stick with them and you'll see in fact in a month when I see you again. That's a different story altogether. And tailoring that language so that the patient can build that trust is really, really, really important. So again, the TLDR here is that you want to use generative AI to help engage the patient and increase the trust and the impact that the current clinicians have. Um, and how do you train uh, the clinicians that work for you? Do they go through any specific training? Because it's different if you provide care online than if you do it uh, in in person. You also mentioned that basically the quality improved a lot, and you know you've been uh, under a lot of uh, scrutiny last year around the quality of care. So what exactly uh, has changed? What can maybe other telemedicine providers learn from you in terms of uh, quality of care? Yeah, I would argue that our quality of care has always been fantastic. And we've shared that with journalists. We've shared that with people. We've sent them the papers and uh, you don't hear much about it. And that's a different story that we can we can talk about. Um, but find another company where there are three psychiatrist leaders. The CEO is a psychiatrist and we have two psychiatrists full-time. One just focuses on patient safety and the other one focuses on patient quality. Uh, clinical quality. Um, I think you'll be hard pressed to find any of the companies that do that. Um, as a matter of fact, when we looked into this, um, most of the psychiatry companies out there don't even have a psychiatrist as a chief medical officer. They have a primary care doctor, right? So we are very, very committed to quality. So let me give you some output data from this, right? So for example, before you come to us and use, uh, we trust and verify that you know how to treat bipolar disorder, which is a uh, what I consider a serious mental illness. And you have to go through mandatory training. As a matter of fact, on the other side, when you start seeing bipolar patients after you go through the training and you write them a certain medication, certain meds require lab testing on a regular basis, right? Lithium, too high of a level, it's toxic to your kidneys. Too low level, it's not effective, right? And this is something we really want to get right because bipolar disorder has the highest suicide rate of any medical diagnosis. And so we monitor that. We could tell you which of our clinicians have the highest rate of getting the labs right with their with their patients. We have that data. And so we published this and we put this out there. Over 90% of our uh, patients who are on meds that require lab monitoring get lab monitoring. The funny thing here, Tasha, is that when I went around asking, uh, what is the base rate? No one else measures this. No one else even begins to measure this. And so it becomes a really challenging, it goes back to that original question, right, of the entire field is complicit and not measuring outcomes because there's no money there. We lose money by paying for the labs for free for our bipolar patients because it's the right thing to do. And so that's just one of many mechanisms. I talk about the proactive suicide prevention program. Um, that 
is free. Certainly, we don't charge more for that, right? And maybe one other program that I think is just really fantastic, and this is emblematic of where the future of Cerebral is going to be, and I think where the future of mental health care is going to be, is this complex case management program. So we decided there are some of our patients who have serious mental illness. They've been recently hospitalized, or they um, they had a recent episode of active suicidal ideation, meaning they thought about killing themselves, they have a plan to kill themselves. So this is high-risk group. And we said, let's create a complex case management program and give it to them for free. And when I came up with this, I said, look, I talked to the finance folks, we're going to lose money on this, right? We're not going to make money on this, but it's the right thing to do because these patients fall through the cracks. And so um, to their credit, they allowed me to do this. This is when I was chief medical officer. And now we're following this. Not only are these patients with the case managers doing much better, they're, they like us much more. They, many of them tell us, oh, you've saved my life you, you, by, by doing this. And here's the interesting thing. When you actually do, go into the financials, those patients stay so long with us, they actually pay for themselves. The complex case management program actually pays for itself. And so we're expanding that program, right? So if we were to abstract out a little bit more, Tasha, the idea here is that telehealth and data science and generative AI, if you leverage that correctly, you can find a lot of interventions that are creative, that are better for the patient, better for the clinician, and also better for business, even in the fee-for-service world. And that's what we're finding here. And I think that's why I'm so excited about the future of where uh, where mental health uh, will go. Probably 10 questions uh, based on, on that response. Uh, one is, and I'll, I'll, let me just name them and let's see if we can go through them quickly. So when you when we talk about uh, lab tests in mental health, one thing that I find particularly important is the role of pharmacogenomics, especially when it comes to prescribing antidepressants. So you don't go through months-long trial and uh, error situations where, where you're trying to find the right drug for uh, the right patient. So I would be curious to hear your opinion on that, on the reimbursement of that, on the use of that. And then uh, the second thing I think is interesting is basically uh, there might be the understanding that just because somebody sees a psychiatrist and that psychiatrist is qualified, that that psychiatrist will also give the patient the right diagnosis. But as the basically data from NAMI shows, for some patients, it can take up to 10 years for them to get uh, to the right diagnosis. So how do you see uh, that problem, the fact that just increasing access doesn't necessarily increase solutions or solved cases. And uh, yeah, basically, what are your experiences as a company in that regard, uh, in regards to, to patients that you treat? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, so maybe um, I'll start with pharmacogenomics. So we have a really impressive advisory board, clinical advisory board that we actively engage. It includes the former um, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the current chair of psychology um, at Harvard, multiple uh, experts in depression and um, uh, pharmacology in general. And so we're always looking at which interventions are cost effective. And today, pharmacogenomics are not quite there yet. There is an impact, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't justify the cost quite yet. I don't hesitate for a second to say that one day it will get there, but it's not quite there yet, right? So that's, that's why we don't do pharmacogenomics. The other piece here um, about quality, this is really important. We do a couple of things that I think very few uh, clinics do. So first of all, 
we provide um, UpToDate, uh, which is an online encyclopedia, which is not cheap, as you probably know, to all of our clinicians. And we encourage them to use it. We don't follow Dave and Moe's uh, healthcare uh, guidelines. I don't follow my you know, medical director's healthcare guidelines. Let's follow the evidence that's constantly shifting. And UpToDate does a great job of that. So we, we bite the bullet and we buy that for it. And it's fantastic for our clinicians. They love it. They constantly learn going forward. Another really innovative thing that, again, I haven't, I don't know another clinic that has this, is that we have a thing called curbside consult. So any of our clinicians who feel like, okay, this is a strange case. This is a complex case. I don't know what the diagnosis is. And I don't, maybe I don't want to give them a diagnosis right now. I could phone a friend they can immediately get in touch with a psychiatrist that's on call. We have full-time psychiatrists who do this, and we call it the curbside consult line. And that day, they can talk through the case. They can say, is this what we want to do before they make a decision, right? I learned this at Harvard. It was a fantastic system because if there were these complex cases that were coming through, I always benefited from you know, knocking on the door of the psychiatrist next to me to say, hey, what do you think about this? And I always benefit from them. So how do we make that virtual? The curbside console line is exactly what we do. So there are multiple efforts, and those are just a couple, where we really support our clinicians to provide high-quality service. And you know, I'll say this, this uh, of the clinicians who want to learn and want to get better, they love working with us. Now, you can imagine the ones that are saying, oh, I'm just trying to turn through patients. I'm trying to, you know, uh, I don't really care about all of this. They tend to leave, right? And that's great for us because we end up keeping some of our top clinicians uh, who want to play by the system that maximizes patient outcomes. What's still missing in pharmacogenomics, by the way? So why is it not uh, there yet, given the clinical evidence for uh, some cases that is there? Yeah, so it's the it's just a numbers game. So you're right that statistically there is a significance that uh, pharmacogenomics can dictate what you want to take this type of antidepressant or that one, right? But that magnitude, that difference, does not justify the cost of it today, right? And so today it doesn't make sense to pay five hundred dollars to do this test, although a lot of people request it because it's sexy, right? But we are the ones who are will tell them, look, we we will tell you which ones are are. Um, uh, which treatments are um, are the most cost effective for you as well? You don't need to pay this, and you can bet I've gotten a lot of calls for pharmacogenomic companies saying, "Hey, look, here's we have a product, we have a service, and every time I look at the data, um, we are not there yet. One day we will be, but today we're we're uh, we're not quite there yet." Um, when it comes to the provision of mental health care, I mentioned in the beginning that the rules around that uh, are changing uh, to a degree when it comes to telemedicine provision. So how do you see the changing rules uh, around that, around prescribing controlled substances? At the moment, uh, the rules by the DAA uh, are extended till November twenty. 23. So the the rules that were um, kind of put in place because of the pandemic are extended till 2023. And if there's a consultation that starts up until 2023, November, uh, that's going to be extended to 2024. But then there's a, a great likelihood that, you know, you will have to have um, in-person visits uh, as well uh, as uh, a part of treatment. So what does that mean uh, for you? And how do you see these requirements when uh, the discussions around this uh, came in place? Uh, also, patient advocates uh, uh, said that this is going to hinder access. So where's your opinion uh, around, you know, all these discussions? Yeah, it's a great question. Very relevant. So 
to make it simple, we actually no longer prescribe controlled substances. Um, and it's a decision I made so that we're not distracted by the PR and other efforts at the time. And we always thought that it was going to come to an end. And uh, so if Ryan Hate comes back, that law that you're talking about, we want to make sure that our patients are not at risk. Because as you may know, it takes months sometimes to take these patients off of these medications. And so I'm not playing any risky game with the well-being of my patients' uh, well-being. And so uh, that, that to me, is very categorical. Um, I do hope that there is more discussion between clinicians um, and, um, and the different agencies. And I know that um, there was a lot of commentary on um, Brian Haight and also the, the state lines, right, where if you can prescribe in this state, but you cross that state line, all of a sudden you can't and your patient is left in the dark with no medications, right? So um, there are many rules out there. We try to right now just focus on patient outcomes without controlled substances, and uh, we'll uh, we'll address that when that becomes relevant. So, what does that mean uh, in terms of the patients that you can actually treat? How much does that limit uh, your customer base? It does limit it, um, but not by that much. I mean, there again, the demand is so great for, and the vast majority of our patients at any point of our uh, of our, our short uh, life has been patients with depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, right? So um, it it does have some limitations, and, and frankly, uh, uh, you know, sometimes first line treatment is a controlled substance, and so we have to make that very explicit when we uh, when we see those diagnoses. Um, but um, right now, it's certainly the demand for for mental health care is so great that uh, it hasn't uh, that has not significantly affected uh, where we're headed. If uh, we take uh, controlled substances uh, out of the equation, what about other ways of treatment uh, that also want to maybe uh, replace uh, the the medications? So digital. Therapeutics. To which extent, you know, are you following the DTX space? Uh, some solutions were again also approved by the FDA because of the pandemic through different rules uh, than uh, normally. And I wonder what the relation is between uh, you and those uh, types of solutions, especially, you know, in the light of peer therapeutics filing for bankruptcy. So, you know, give me your take. How do you uh, see all these uh, developments in the digital uh, health space? Yeah, it's a great question, Tasha. And I will say I can't share now, but there will be news and I'll be in touch when that comes out, hopefully. Uh, but I'm very excited about that uh, because if you think about where I'm coming from, um, I want Cerebral to be the platform where all of these different interventions with evidence can flourish. And then we'll take the ones that really help our patients and stick with them and amplify those. Right. That's the cycle that we're going to rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat so that we create the best mental health system, irrespective of what the DSM-5 might say at any given point. Right. So it's just about outcomes. It's just about. So, of course, we're talking to digital therapeutics companies. Um, I actually know the pair folks uh, uh, quite um, quite well. Um, uh, it's an unfortunate but very valiant attempt at uh, bringing to market a, um, a product that I frankly, wasn't ready from a regulatory and insurance uh, perspective. Um, but uh, it's also, you know, we we always look for reasons. The biggest reason is uh, it's been a tough year. It's been a tough couple of years for uh, with the interest rates so high and the macroeconomics have not been cooperating. So that's true for companies across the board. Um, uh, so I, I, uh, I understand that. But in short, 
very interested uh, in partnerships. And if anyone, and this is anyone who knows me as a clinician or a serial entrepreneur, if they have an asset or a service or something that really improves the outcomes for any mental health diagnosis, I will have a conversation with them. And I'll say, let's try it. Let's give it a shot. If it really, if the evidence is really there and the cost effectiveness is there, uh, I'm going to say yes, because look, we're not smart enough to know what is the best clinical service and what is the best treatment at any given time. But what we can do is create a platform where those treatments that are validated can have a place to flourish and we can pick and choose the ones based on outcomes uh, going forward. So are you already doing or planning on doing any real world or just clinical trials around these solutions? Because if I look at the digital health community, I think a lot of people are really excited about digital therapeutics. I think everybody's frustrated by the speed of legislation and all the hurdles related to the reimbursement and actually approving these uh, medications. Um, so how do you see that the kind of move from theory to market readiness, if we name it that way, could be uh, achieved? It's a great question. So, uh, so absolutely is the short answer. And hopefully we'll have some news for you sooner rather than later. Um, um, but we're definitely engaging uh, with a number of different entities who are very fascinated uh, by what we have to offer, which is a lot of patients who need care. Um, I'll say the other thing, clinical trials, we actually ran a clinical trial for Alto Neuroscience, which is a precision psychiatry company. And um, this is one of the first decentralized at-home trial where we actually go to the patient's home and get uh, EEG scans, brain scans, and get blood tests and get a number of other wearable device data to make sure that we can eventually do precision psychiatry. So based on all of that data, which medication should we put you, put you on for Alto Neuroscience? And I think that's the future. And you have to ask, well, why did the Alto Neuroscience folks and others choose Cerebral? It's because our DNA is data science. That all comes down to data science. We have the data on our patients so we can recruit, so we can tailor treatments, so we can feedback data and then improve, auto-improve the engagement efforts uh, for the patient. So I think this is the foundation for the future of mental health care. And uh, we're, we're just so excited to, um, to be uh, in this uh, position right now. We talked about uh, generative AI and large language models, uh, mostly in the context of uh, workflow optimization. Um, what about other potentials? You know, some uh, people also see the potential of large language models as not exactly therapist, but uh, kind of giving patients either the accurate latest information that you need, especially, you know, with the latest developments and connecting uh, large language models with the latest information that's available on, on the internet. So it might be much easier to find the information that's suitable uh, for you. Um, and also, they can be very nice to, to talk to. You know, I mean, these large language models are very uh, polite, if I say so, very kind. So how do you look at uh, those kind of ideas as a clinician? You know, the clinical practice is risk averse. So it's all about safety first. And uh, to a degree, um, the problem with large language models at the moment is that they can also be very deceiving while sounding very convincing. Yeah, it's a really important and timely question. So in short, I have a strong perspective on this, and I rarely have strong perspectives, Tasha, as you'll find out. Um, AI, generative AI, will not replace your therapist or your psychiatrist. 
They will not. Uh, as a matter of fact, they will augment what they can do, but they will not replace them. Why? Because ultimately, the product, the service of mental health care is trust. And right now, we're just not at that phase where you can trust an AI to the points that you made. Let me give you a couple of examples, right? For example, uh, if you're prescribed an antidepressant and you ask the, the general AI, you say, hey, look, what, what are the side effects of this antidepressant? It lists out a hundred different side effects. And that's factually true. But framed differently is, well, most of those are less than 1% of the case. And the net benefit here, the clinical judgment here is that this patient would benefit from this on average. That doesn't come out. And so the patient might ask that, get that information and say, oh, wow, that's a lot of side effects. I don't like side effects. I'm going to stop this medication, right? So we're, and to get to that clinical judgment, I think we still have a ways to go. Let me give you a more dire example, a scarier example. What if you ask, if you ask the patient, uh, if the patient asks something simple and very straightforward, like I want to kill myself, maybe the chat GPT could say, okay, this is a suicidal patient here, call 911, do this or that, go to the nearest emergency room. But what if they do it a little bit more subtly? What if they say something like, would it be better for uh, carbon emissions if I did not exist? The factual answer to that is yes. And so the GPT system would say, yes, it wouldn't be able to infer that that question might be a cry for help. And so then say, oh, well, how do I hurt myself? Well, here are a few ways to hurt yourself, right? So it, it, we're, we're not close to being able to build that human trust yet. Maybe one day we will, but it's not coming anytime soon. So the way that I'm thinking about this is how can we leverage generative AI to really help the patient, help the clinician help the patient so that the clinician is a gateway to all communications going to the patient. So let me ask you differently. Do you see then, uh, you know, these uh, apps or these uh, kind of engines as a threat to mental health because we've got a higher demand than supply. And I'm sure that, you know, many patients might turn uh, to these tools for questions. I think you're right. I think it's just a matter of time before those scenarios I gave you and others that I haven't thought of will materialize. And I think what will happen is that uh, then the government will say, we need to regulate this in some way, right? And this is why many people who are smarter than I am and who understand this at a deep level are advocating for regulation, because this can be very, very scary if we don't treat it with respect. And so, I, yeah, I think that will happen. I very much would advise against, you don't have to come to Cerebral, but I would never recommend anyone to use a pure AI as their therapist. I don't think that's safe. I don't think anyone believes uh, that that's uh, safe or the way to go. Um, what's the, the biggest challenge at the moment uh, for Cerebral, you know, in general? Yeah, so, you know, a big part of this, I have to say, is the macro economy. Uh, this is a major, major piece of this. Uh, it's hurt uh, the runway for a lot of companies. We're lucky in the sense that we raised money toward the end of uh, 2021. And so we do have a healthy uh, runway. Um, and I have to say, um, this generative AI is a major boost for us because we're very well equipped to take advantage of uh, these modules. You might think this might get a little boring, but I think this is really critical. In order to implement generative AI, you have to have access to the data of your EMR. So if it's a third party off the shelf EMR, you might, you know, it could get pretty challenging. And my last company was a telepsychiatry company as well. And I could tell you, we've went through that battle many times. Whereas we can iterate on a daily basis. I know that a lot of our competitors can't do that. They can't iterate on a monthly basis. 
So we have a real advantage of owning our own data, having our own data infrastructure, and having really great machine learning people within the group already because we were already leaning heavy into this. So I am um, I am optimistic ultimately of that. Um, but certainly, if you were to ask, the biggest challenge by far is the macroeconomics, and I hope that the interest rates soften a little bit in the coming quarters. Just to clarify around, uh, you know, generative AI, um, when uh, ChatGPT was released to the public and started to be uh, widely used, companies started to warn their employees that basically they shouldn't um, input too many uh, sensitive data to these platforms because then they can somehow the data can get leaked because these are learning uh, models. So how do you ensure that doesn't happen, especially, you know, given your history when you actually already had a challenge with leaking or sharing data where it shouldn't be shared? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. And uh, we actually this morning went through our AI charter. Yeah, it's a data science charter. And it basically says that you cannot put HIPAA uh, compliant information within, you can't put PHI within um, the model. So it's all about engagement right now. And then we're vetting that on the back end so that we make sure that it's stripped of any PHI. Um, I can tell you, I talked to competitors and some of them say, yeah, we're not doing that. We're, we're just trying to get ahead as quickly as possible. But I will say this is where you really have to tread carefully uh, because if one day the regulators come, rightfully so, and say, how have you been generating this data? Have you been leaking information into the cloud to Google and Microsoft? Um, you have to be able to answer for that, right? So um, our commitment is that our data we only use for clinical care, and we're we're very we're very uh, clear about that. When it comes to innovation and you know care provision and how to do it in a modern way, we we talked a lot about you know AI about large language models, but actually innovation sometimes can happen in the way that you design care around the patient. You mentioned care managers earlier. Um, it's all about also how do you enable that the workforce has time to get updated with all the novelties. A lot of clinicians don't have time to really you know. Uh, know which digital therapeutic could be appropriate for which patient or what digital therapeutics even are. So uh, what's uh, the structure of your workforce at the moment? And basically, what kind of changes or advancements have you made in that sense in the last four years? Yeah, we're... uh... So, you know, as I mentioned, we have the clinical quality department that has multiple different uh, efforts in place at any given time to make sure the quality is high. So credentialing every single one of our clinicians, uh, making sure, even if they're not taking insurance, we're credentialing everyone just to make sure they have the right background, mandatory trainings for certain things like bipolar disorder, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, encouragement to follow. We have office hours so we can encourage our clinicians to follow um clinical guidelines. Uh, we have the curves at console that I talked about. We have up to date. We have um, on the safety side, the suicide prevention program that is staffed by our crisis specialists, which is under the safety department. Um, so in short, we have got a lot of, and that's not all of them. There are many, many other efforts out there that are really fantastic. And you know, this is what I think. People know what good quality care is. Um, people know. And so if you actually look at our patients, you look at our rating on Trustpilot, it's very high. We're rated as great throughout all of this for the last two years. And you might wonder, well, then why is that the case? Uh, so we're going to make sure that our patients do better. That's our North Star. And we're going to put our heads down. We're going to do that. 
And then the world will realize once the data comes out, right? And that's, you know, we were listed by Forbes this year at just a couple of weeks ago as the best telehealth platform. Uh, we had a recognition for a best place to work for a remote, com- large remote company. And we won an AI award, right? So, and these are the things that I think journalists don't want to pick up on as much. I understand we have to earn our, our credibility back, but I will say that uh, we're very much on that trajectory and I'm very optimistic given everything that I've seen from generative AI. Um, is there anything else that you would like to uh, say regard in regards to just the general development in the mental health space? Anything that caught your eye the last uh, two to three years or anything that you are uh, following closely? Yeah, Tasha, there's one thing I'll say, and you can cut it out if it's too wonky, but I think uh, given given your deep uh, clinical expertise here and your healthcare expertise, it could be interesting to your audience. So if you look at the DSM-5, right, this is the book that diagnoses mental illnesses. You might say, did a bunch of researchers come together and say, these are the diagnoses and scientifically, this, these are the diagnoses. That's not it at all. It's not data-driven. It's actually a bunch of experts from how many years ago got together and said, we think these symptoms might be depression. We think these symptoms might be anxiety. That's not data-driven. Eventually, we want to replace the DSM-5. That's the, that's the vision. And how can we do that? Well, what we can do is begin to measure attributes of our patients as they're coming in and getting treatment and then realizing, oh, okay, if your sleep is really bad and your energy is really bad, this specific medication tends to be better for you at this dosage, titrated at this level. When we have enough data points, we could pull that out and I'm going to call that a specific subtype of depression. That's data-driven categorization of diagnoses. That is the future. And I think that when we have that, my this is my promise to my patients, which is ultimately uh, what I care about the most, is to make that free for everyone to see so that everyone can see that instead of using a DSM-5, which is not helpful at all, and it's really caused, I can spend a lot of time talking about this, but it caused pharma companies to chase after uh, treatments that do not work. They tra- chase after Me Too uh, treatments that don't work, and it's stymied an entire field. We can unlock that if we create a data-driven diagnostic system. And so I'm very, very excited about that. And I think we can get there, give us a little bit of time, maybe in a year or two, but that is certainly something we can do given how data-centric we are. I think you alluded to an interesting thing, and that is the need to label things. You know, you mentioned basically two symptoms and offered a pharmacological solution for those two systems, even before mentioning what the diagnosis for those two uh, problems uh, could be. People feel better if they have the impression that now they know what's wrong with them when the doctor creates a diagnosis. And pharma companies need to have diagnosis because they, you know, they the regulators require them to register drugs for specific indications. So maybe you can actually, I will not cut that out, I will actually expand on that. So how do you see, you know, the whole challenge around off-label prescribing, um, the, uh, the, the, the indications for medications and, you know, the, the big question of how many drugs do we actually already have, but don't know that they could be used for problems uh, that exist and perhaps don't have a recognized solution? That's 100% right. That's 100% right. And, you know, if I may, I'd like to suggest you you bring the CEO of uh, Alto Neuroscience here, Dr. Amit Etkin, who uh, was a professor at Stanford. I have no financial interest in that company. Um, but that's exactly what they're running towards because you look at each clinical trial that has failed 
there's some subset of patients that really benefited. But then the clinical trials get stopped because, oh, that doesn't reach our threshold internally, so we're going to wipe that off. And so what Alto did was wrap these medications together and say, let's figure out which subpopulations they really work for, and let's diagnose them based on these objective data markers and change the way that mental health meds are, are prescribed altogether. So I never thought that I would be plugging a, a separate company on this podcast, but uh, they're doing such great work for patients and I have great promise. Uh, I feel like there's great promise in that line of inquiry. Yeah, I would uh, maybe appreciate an intro to that. But um, yeah, I guess we are a little bit uh, away from from the mental health space. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it brings us back to the beginning. How do you recognize that you have a problem and find the right solution for that because what kind of puzzles me is the gap that we see between um, all the solutions and all the ideas that are you know on the market in the pharmacological sense in the digital health sense in the uh, therapy and diagnostic sense and on the other hand maybe someone that has a problem is absolutely not aware of everything that's on the market. And there's this huge, huge gap between that person finding the solution that might uh, might be there uh, for them. So maybe any final thoughts uh, around that and how we can um, decrease the time it takes to get to mental health help. Yeah, I'll... You know, I'll end with a stat that I think is just staggering, and I've I've uh, lost friends to this illness before. So bipolar disorder, uh, to get correctly diagnosed with bipolar disorder, it takes on average 17 years. And this is the illness that has the highest suicide uh, rate of any illness out there. That's atrocious. That's really, really terrible. And so we need to standardize care. We need to measure outcomes. We need to train clinicians to screen for bipolar disorder accurately, family history, all these different things, and we need to have it in structured data. I think it's a travesty. I'm going to call out my field as a psychiatrist. I'll say we've failed patients for generations. And now we have telehealth. Now we have biomarkers. Now we have data. Now we have generative AI. If, you know, in, in a few years, Tasha, I come back and we haven't cracked this nut in a significant way, that's on me. It's on cerebral. Right? We need to be able to do this. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. <music>